our series in personal idols. And as we like to do, if you've been a part, a part of the church for a few years now, what we like to do with this Sunday with uh, predominantly the ladies in attendance, we just like to, to serve you and bring, uh, bring an encouraging word for you, hopefully a, a seasonal and timely word for you that you can, uh, you can take and, and draw out personal uh, things in your own life. I still don't know why I'm the one that always gets to come back to do this. Uh, it really is a joy. I think it's because I have a wife and five daughters, probably. So I'm, I guess, the most sensitive or something. Thank you. I do have my redeeming factor is that I was uh, named the manliest man of the, the previous decade. So I got to sit out of the manliest man competition until the finals. So at least I could participate in the finals <laughs> last night. Uh, but what we're going to... So if you're a man, thank you for being here. But uh, as you'll see, we're going we're gonna to look at the life or the experience of Rachel and Leah and their experience with their husband, Jacob, uh, in Genesis 29. So you can be turning there, verse, start at verse 31. But what I've found from this week is that there is much application cross-gender with this passage. Uh, my heart has been taken to task several times, and it, uh, I hope you um, draw attention in a little while to the Idol Architecture handout that a uh, little pamphlet that was made available last week. I've done that thing three times now, and it just gets worse and worse. I said, man, I told Keith, I'd like to stop doing this now for a little while so I can experience a victory and then maybe, hopefully, <laughs> look at some other things. But as we, I, I love uh, figuring out, I'm analytical-ish, so I, I like analyzing the differences between men and women. And I recently came across uh, a gentleman who does, uh, a Christian guy who does seminars, marriage seminars, Mark Gunger, and watched a few different things on the Internet that he did. And he did the differences between uh, men's brains and women's brains. And so he, he went on to describe, and I think this is really true because I've heard it described uh, with different things, but essentially the same way. He described that men's brains have boxes. In them. And everything has its own box. Everything fits very nicely into those boxes, and the men like to keep everything in those boxes. And the boxes really don't touch, there's no overlap. When it, okay, we're in this box, we're just in this box. That's what we're doing in this box. So, on the other hand, uh, women's brains look like the wires in a Japanese car engine. They are all wrapped around and all connected. Everything connects to everything. There's nothing that's separate. Everything connects. And usually this results with uh, a wife and husband who are talking about something. And the husband usually has this expression. Because <laughs> the wife is trying to describe, well, because this and then that. And it went over here. And, and now this. And the husband. Because he's still trying to figure out, how do those connect? I just got boxes. I don't have wiring like that. Well, it's very true in my home, those things that happen. Uh, but the, the box that men, men have a particular box that women don't have wiring for. And it's a box called nothing. <laughs> and for most men, it's their favorite box. Women don't have a nothing wire. Everything connects. And it's going a mile a minute. And it's connecting, and they're figuring out how to connect. And that's connecting. They're figuring out all the problems of the world and solving them because they're connecting. And then they get on the phone calling everybody else, figuring out how to connect. And it's going to connect. And this is why. Oh, I got a revelation. And then we got to do this. So when you ask a man, particularly, hey, what are you doing today? Nothing. For him, that's something. That he's probably been looking forward to and anticipating doing nothing. But women don't have the nothing category. I, I have a nothing box, personal confession time. My wife's not in here. I don't know why. I told her I was going to use her in illustration. I have a nothing box. 
And I will work feverishly around the house. If there's something to do around the house, I will work feverishly. Last week, I installed uh, floors in the girls' room and in Owen's room and I painted the girls' room, all that stuff. And I did it at a feverish pace. I wanted to be done. You know why? Because I wanted to sit down and do nothing. And I will, if I'm doing a home improvement project or something, I will anticipate. I think that's why I don't finish them off, because I just burn out and just kind of, okay, I'm ready for nothing now. And so I'm, I call myself the 80% guy, because I'll just do a project 80% of the way and kind of leave it. Drives my wife crazy, doesn't it, hon? Because <laughs> what... <laughs> What drives women, wives, crazy about men is when they do nothing. Because women are always about doing something. We have to do something. This morning, I think what we're going to find in this passage, but also the title of this morning is The Doing of Idolatry. Because we, as we've been learning, and this has been, I think, a wonderful resource, particularly with Keith, in presenting these messages, there has been a particular anointing, I think, that that we've experienced with the past three weeks, uh, where he has, is it three or four? I forget. But they've been exceptional, and there has been a pointed spirit direction for all of us in our hearts to be able to experience what's going on deeper down. Because we can deal with the same frustrations over and over and over again. And there's the frustrations or maybe sin patterns or habits that we've had for years. And we just don't. How do I overcome this? But really it's the looking deeper to figure out what, what, am, I, what am I desiring? What am I craving that moment that I'm so frustrated about or uh, angry about or desirous of? And there's a there's a doing there's an uh, the idolatry that we have it, it's active it looks like something in our lives and Keith has been talking about that but I hope to hone that in uh, for us this morning with this passage we're going to start Genesis 29:31 we're going to read a, a good bit all the way through verse 24 of chapter 30 when the Lord saw that Leah was hated he opened her womb but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me. Because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son. And said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of your womb? Then she said, Here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings have I wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Nephtali. Then Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children. When she saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. 
In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to him and said, you must come into me, for I have hired you for my with my son's mandrakes. So she lay with her. He lay with her that night and God listened to Leah and she could she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar and Leah conceived again and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. We have. Such devoted sisters. In this passage, don't we? Maybe not so devoted to one another, but devoted to what was crying out the craving that was calling out from within them that they really couldn't put couldn't put down, couldn't ignore. But let's meet these sisters. We have Leah, who is uh, the older sister of Rachel, but really grew up most probably in Rachel's shadow. We learn this from uh, the rest of chapter 29. We, we see in verse 17 of chapter 29 that she has weak eyes. This most probably means that she had some form of cross-eyedness. She went along... We, we a lot of times think that Laban was just the mean one in giving Leah to Jacob, tricking Jacob, him thinking that he was getting Rachel. But he Laban sneaks in Leah the marriage night and now you're married off. But we, we also have to think that maybe Leah, knowing that she had some weak eyes, was maybe questioning the fact that maybe she would never, ever get married. So maybe she went along with her father's plan. Her father's plan to trick to make sure that she had a husband. I think we find out that maybe that was part of her motivation as she is naming her children. And, and we also find that Leah is hated by Jacob. And this is this is clo- the hatred here is is closely related to the form of just being unloved and neglected. So here Leah is. The older sister of a very beautiful daughter, the Bible, beautiful sister, the Bible says. And she knows from her time growing up, living in Rachel's shadow, now married to Jacob and his preference toward Rachel. Here's a woman who knows what it means to be cast aside continually and cast aside again and looked over, passed over cast aside because of a physical imperfection or uh, something emotional may be happening in her cast off, cast aside. We can probably deduce from what we have here that Leah walked around with a woe is me complex. Woe is me. Every time you bump into her, woe is me. Rachel, give me some of your son's mandrakes. (laughs) Woe is me. You took my husband away. You want some of my son's mandrakes too? Then we have Rachel. The younger, more beautiful. In, here we have verse 17 again. She was beautiful in form and appearance. So she was attractive in appearance, physical beauty. And, and it's drawing attention to the fact that she was beautiful in form, had a good physique. Now here, Rachel probably is knowing that she's the most beautiful. And wants everybody else to know that she's the most beautiful. Doing it. A certain way. Maybe she expects things a certain way. Maybe that way is her way. She wants everything to happen the way she wants it to happen. She knew what it meant to be favored. Favored by her, her father, perhaps, growing up. Favored by Jacob, her husband. Woman who maybe expects success as she's defining success. 
And she gets in the moment of seeing her sister. Her sister now is succeeding and being favored by God more than she is. She wants children. She wants children. She sees her sister having all the children. We wonder if Rachel is walking around with a queen complex. I'm the queen. Everybody must obey. Here's my scepter. When I wave it, you will obey. But when we, we, we put together these aspects of who Leah, who Rachel are, the situation of them growing up, their own characteristics, their own way of doing things, their own uh, physical and emotional characteristics, all of those things put together as they're growing up, all that background is coming together and it's being put in the right situation. And when we have all of our background and who we are coming together and being put in a particular situation, that a lot of times is the place where idolatry is exposed. We have to think of our own lives in that. But what we, we've, we've all grown up. This is great. Keith yesterday uh, in the sessions just said, everybody comes from a dysfunctional family. Everybody. He's pointing that out for Jacob. Jacob came from a dysfunctional family. All of us do. But given that, it's who we are. We, we're wired particular ways and we do things particular ways and we get put in the right situation. Whether we get into that situation or the situation comes to us, that a lot of times is the exact avenue that God's using to have our hearts, desires bubble up to the surface and expose what we're really living for. Expose what, what's going on in us. And here the situation comes to Leah and Rachel and their idolatry is being dis- exposed. They have desires and they are passionate about their desires. Now look, their desire is for blessing. They want blessing. And we want blessing. But they went about trying to get the blessing in a way that they wanted it to be met, thinking that that would be what God wanted. Situations test our loves. They test our loyalties. And God allows them. He allows those situations. He brings, oftentimes brings those situations to us because there's a testing going on. Look, and there's, there's a difference between testing and tempting. God can allow a test, a trial of our faith to come to us. But the Bible says in James 1, he doesn't bring temptation to us. He doesn't tempt with evil. He can't be tempted with evil. He doesn't tempt with evil. But you have the, the, there's a testing, there's a trial period that comes to our faith that God brings. He ordains, he brings to us in order to test, do you love me with all of your heart? Or are you holding something back? Are you holding something back because you, you want it to be met in a particular way and not trusting God that it can be met the way that he's bringing it to us? God oftentimes allows those situations, allows those situations to arise to test our love for him. Ed Welch, uh, and you have, I believe, a list of quotes. I'm sorry, I don't have fuller notes for you, but you have uh, some notes, place to take your own personal notes, but I, I gave you the... Uh, Quotes that we'll be talking about this morning. That first quote, Ed Welch, in his article, Motives, Why Do I Do the Things I Do, says this. When we are going through especially hard times, our God motives often come to the surface. We may find ourselves saying, God, what did I ever do to deserve this? How could you do this to me? The tough times expose our basic allegiances. Do we live for God or for ourselves? Now, when these situations come and and they're challenging our basic allegiances. Deep down in our hearts, is it God that we want or is it really just uh, ourselves that we want? We want our own definition of success, our own definition of happiness, our own definition of joy and blessing. Because in those situations, all of us, I think, all of us are tempted with this. Are we going to be content with the situation that's come up? Because all the situations that bring a testing, they really test our contentment. They test our joy. Do we have joy in God or do we have joy in ourselves or in a particular thing? And when we have joy in something other than God, that's just basic idolatry. Because we begin going after that thing that we think will bring us the most joy and convince, well, God, you've got joy for me, but this is the way I can get it the quickest. Maybe this is the way I can get it to where I can understand that it really is going to bring joy. 
And all of our idols need fuel. They need they need food. They need fuel. They need fire in order to keep going. And I think discontentment is a basic fuel for idolatry. When we begin to feel discontent, you know what happens? We begin looking off, not looking to God anymore, looking off for something else. Why? There's a joy issue going on in our hearts. Jerry Bridges, uh, in his book, Respectable Sins, describes discontentment in this way. Discontentment most often arises from our ongoing and unchanging circumstances that we can do nothing about. Too helpful to read once. Let's read it again. Discontentment most often arises from ongoing and unchanging circumstances that we can do nothing about. Unchanging circumstances that are trials to our faith. The truth is, it is our response to our circumstances rather than the degree of difficulty that determines whether or not we are discontent. It's not the truth is it's our response to our circumstances rather than to the degree of difficulty that determines whether or not we are discontent. How true is that we face a situation that we have deemed too hard. And so then we think it's our right to be unhappy. God, I'm just, this is just too much. I, mm-mm. And we start saying things like, I, I won't, I will not. Because we then have deemed the situation determining. Now, it's our response, not the degree of difficulty. There are some serious degrees of difficulty when it comes to living life in a fallen world. Choices that have been made in the past that still have ramifications today. That's hard. Opportunity for discontentment all over the place. But yet, it's our response to those circumstances, not the circumstances, not the degree of difficulty. We don't get a free pass because we can measure our degree of difficulty with somebody else and say, no, 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 I'm just going. And usually in that moment, we try to disqualify everybody else in their experience. No, 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 mine's harder. I hear you. I appreciate your sensitivity. I appreciate your care for me. But really, you don't understand what I'm going through. This is really difficult. It's, we're responding. Our response to the circumstance really is going to determine our contentment level. Here, Leah and Rachel have obvious desires that are coming to the surface. But their, their quest to achieve the fruition of their de- desires, they want to see fruitfulness, they want to see blessing, is due to a craving for contentment. They want to be happy. And they're going about it two different ways. Leah wants to be happy. Rachel wants to be happy. Their response is fueled by their discontentment, which opens the door to the expression of their idols. And here we have really a proliferation. When there is discontentment, there all of a sudden uh, temptation is broad and it's welcoming for us to find all these expressions of our idolatries. And what this Uh, The idol architecture pamphlet helps you do is investigate the things that are going on in your life. What what am I experiencing? What are the sin issues that are just presently just too much for me? I'm bumping into them all the time. I'm just getting sick of them. Or maybe I'm just ignoring them because I think they'll they'll never go away. What are the sin issues going on? What are those things happening in our lives just on an, an exterior level? Because what we have to understand is those exterior levels really indicate something deeper into our hearts. And that's what this is so helpful to do in going to the idols of desire, the things. What do I want? Why do I do do the things that I do? What do I want? What am I seeking for? What am I going after? We find this. We find several characteristics going on and expressions in this passage of idolatry happening. And we're introduced in in, uh, verse one of chapter 30 of Rachel's here. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. But, you know, Leah probably was envious and jealous of her sister, Rachel, as well. Because they, they were both looking for a blessing, but the blessing they're looking for was a little different. So, but basically the same, the same exteriors happening. She sees her sister being loved by the man that she just wants to be loved by. She wants the blessing of knowing that she's loved by her husband and can't get it and doesn't know what to do. With every child, it will now my husband will love me. Now he'll be attached to me. Now he will honor me. Finally, something 
She just wants to be loved by her husband. And she sees that Rachel is the, she's the favored one. Here, a helpful definition again by Jerry Bridges of envy. Envy is the painful and oftentimes resentful awareness of an advantage, advantage enjoyed by someone else. Sometimes we want that same advantage, leading to the further sin of covetousness. And sometimes we just resent the other person for having something we don't have. But we don't just envy people in general. Very helpful here. Usually there are two conditions that tempt us to envy. First, we tend to envy those with whom we most closely identify. Second, we tend to envy them in the areas we value most. So true. You don't envy somebody that you can't relate with. You usually envy somebody that you have you have so enough close ties and enough similarities that the differences become so glaring you can't take them anymore. It's somebody in the same season of life, same profession, same direction, same mission for life, whatever that might be. There, there's that's the one we're going to envy. You, you don't envy people you can't relate to. You don't have a desire for a particular job or you don't have a desire uh, for your kids to look a particular way. You're not going to envy the people that do. But it's when you do have those desires and they are very closely related because what? Because we know I can have what you have. It's not impossible for me to have what you have. It's you have a husband and it's not impossible for me to have a husband. But yet I'm envying you because, well, we have the same background or. Or we were, we were friends, or we were single for, we we talked about this, all these different scenarios going on in our minds. But why? Because I'm similar enough to you that what you have is bothersome to me, because that's a difference. And those little differences, those little nuances, really become too much for us to handle. The second thing he says there. His envy arises when someone is enjoying something that we value very much. When we attach value, when there's close enough similarities, we find envy growing. And envy, jealousy, those are very closely related. And it leads itself, as Jerry Bridges says, leads itself to the sin of covetousness. I crave with an undying craving what you have. It's where there's resentment and bitterness toward the other person. And the other person probably, what's going on? I just feel different. I don't know what's going on. It's just different. You might be saying the same thing and you're the one envying that person. It's just different. I don't know what's going on. It's just different. Envying somebody that is closely familiar, but yet has something that you want because you want the blessing of that enjoyment. And when that envy stirs, I think another fruit of, uh, another expression of idolatry is despair. Despair is also here. Rachel is despairing that she has no children. But I think also Leah is despairing in a way that she is hopeful. She's setting her hope really in the wrong thing, but so hopeful that this next child will bring the love that she so desires from her husband. And then hopelessness. To where if she has Judah, I think it was more of an expression of hopelessness with Judah this time. I'll praise the Lord. I hope there was more this time. I'll praise the Lord. Because he's the one that's blessed me with this. But we don't know. Because then with Zebulun, we, now my husband will honor me. Now, finally, maybe, hopefully. Despair going on. She just wants uh, here. Her despair is evidenced in the naming of her children. Reuben means see. Simeon means heard. The Lord has seen that I'm hated. The Lord has heard my cry. I wonder if also what she was trying to communicate to her husband was, see me. Hear me. And then Levi means attached. Zebulun means honor. She has Levi. Now my husband will be attached to me for I've borne him three sons. Certainly that would be enough to, for him to take notice of me. But yet, doesn't happen. 
She's looking for her children to bring about the blessing of the love that she so craves and desires. But we oftentimes, we feel these same things. We have times uh, where something we think, if I just have this, then I'll be okay. If I just have this, fill in the blank, then life will be easier. Then I'll be comfortable. Then I'll have the pleasure that I desire. Then I'll be significant or accepted. We sound the same ways. And what is this possibly for you? Is it, is it your own appearance? If I could just fix this about my body, then it would be okay. Children. If I just had children. Or possibly, if I just had obedient children, then it would be okay. But newer things. Just crave the newer things. Just want newer stuff. Look at your house. You're dissatisfied, discontent with the things that you have. We've had that's over for 20 years. We just, we need something different. But there are other people that, oh, all right, that sofa is just two years old. We've got to do something else. We've got to change this. We've got to change this room. We've got to paint again. We have to, w- there's a craving there. I want, I want newer things. I want to feel the effect of just even the stuff that I accumulate, the clothes that I accumulate, the things from my house that I accumulate. If, if there's an inordinate, an inordinate amount of accumulation of stuff, we have to recognize and maybe understand what am I desiring deep inside of me that I think if I just have this next thing, then life will be okay in a particular way. Here, Rachel's despair is evidenced in her telling Jacob, give me children or I'm going to die. I think she really thought that. I'm going to die, but not die of physical death, but die of reproach. Die of some other woman and basically my sister looking at me and gloating. Because I see the gloat in her eyes. I see it. She's doing it. Give me children or I'll die. For her, it it becomes a matter of life or death. She wants children to to bring about a a blessing for her. She wanted the blessing possibly that comes with just a a status that people are looking at saying, oh, you're blessed. And in in this culture that you were considered lower class if you didn't have a son. And so maybe she's desiring the status for other people that she would be able to maybe a significance of, oh, now people will look at me and I can be significant in their eyes. I can be accepted maybe in their eyes. But today uh, we might not sound like give me this or I'll die. We might sound like give me this or I'll be miserable for the rest of my life. Give me a husband or I'll be miserable for the rest of my life. Please, can I be attracted to him? May he be handsome? Or I'll be miserable for the rest of my life. May we not be shipped off to Africa because I will be miserable for the rest of my life. That's, that's how it comes out of us. But what do we look at and say? If, if I don't get this, it just spells misery. If I, don't, if I don't get the respect of my peers in the workplace or I don't get the respect of other mothers, it'll be miserable for me. We experience despair when we're convinced that things will never change. And we're really, oh, don't we cheapen who God is? God, in this moment, I'm not too convinced that you're sovereign and all-powerful. Because if I don't get this, I'm going to be miserable for the rest of my life. And it's never going to change, God. It's never going to change. And that's usually when we get to the point of saying, uh, why did you do this to me? What did I do to deserve this? Don't you, just, don't you want to be, me to be happy, God? Why, why, why is this happening? We become, in these moments of despair, we become like our idols. And Keith pointed this out very uniquely and very helpfully. We become like them when we we lose our hearing of God. Because we're listening so much for that idol who can't speak. We have to fill in the words for the idol. We lose a sense of God speaking to us. We lose a sense of seeing God in the midst of circumstances and situations. We begin to say that he's not there. God could never have brought this about. God certainly didn't want this to happen. Now, there are instances, sinful occurrences, that certainly we can say God did not want this to happen. But when we look at the situations and the things that God's using to draw up these idols in our hearts, that 
that he wants to come and heal and and deliver us from so he can satisfy all that we are in that moment we might not be hearing him because we're looking so much to listen for our idol we don't see him in the midst of what's going on because all we can see is the craving of our idol and we become dumb spiritually groping around trying to sort our way and there's frustration and confusion and then just fill in the blanks i got to fill in the blanks myself because God's just not anywhere around he's not hearing me he's not responding and, you know, Jacob's, this is interesting to, to point out, Jacob's response to Rachel wasn't good enough. Because he brought it to God. God's the one that's withheld this from you, not me. God has. That wasn't good enough for her. She wanted it now. See, in those moments where we are all focused in on our idols and, and we become deaf to God and blind to where he is and spiritually numb and dumb, in those moments... We're seeking, we're seeking the craving that we want. And, and when people come to us and say, hey, let me remind you, God laid a scripture on my heart for you. Can I share it with you? And you listen and immediately, no, it's not where I am. Somebody trying to encourage you with maybe a past experience they've had. No. Even scripture doesn't become helpful anymore. And we, we find ourselves saying, it's, just, it's not enough. It's not enough just to read my Bible. It's not enough to pray. I've tried that. It's not enough uh, to just talk to a bunch of people about it because uh, it's, it's still there. It's not going away. It's not enough. We experience a lot of the same things. So there's envy. There's despair. There's also control issues going on where Rachel is seeking to control the blessing coming to her. And she gives her servant uh, Bilhah to Jacob. She says, no, I want this now. I'm craving this. So give it. And this is a cultural experience where they would uh, give their maidservant to their husband if they were barren and, and have children. That's why Rachel is naming the children, because technically they're hers. So she gets to name the children. But here she's trying to sidestep here. Have a surrogate blessing. Can we just have a surrogate blessing? You take my servant and then I'll finally have a son and I'll finally have a child. And maybe this can kind of get off of me a little bit. And, you know, she probably knows about Jacob's dream. Jacob's dream and the promise was you'll have an enduring line. And she's looking at herself. Well, I'm the favored one. And his enduring line needs to come from me. When you have discontentment, idolatry going on, all of a sudden she's saying, I've got to do something about this. And this is when the doing comes in. I have to do something about this. I can't just sit back and do nothing and let God do it all. I have to do something in this. And we all, all of us, have a propensity, a, a, a a desire to have a quick fix. We want things to be solved immediately. So we want to put our plan into action. We want to put our hands on the wheel and say, no, no, God, we need to turn left way back there. Not, not giving that there's an alternate route that God just says, no, 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 there's something up here I want you to see before we take the left. No, 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 no. There's the blessing. I want the blessing. Sideswiping and, and sidetracking Everything we perceive, maybe that Lord, Lord, you're just moving a bit too slow. I know you might be busy with other things and stuff, but uh, me, how about what I'm going through? So we want to manipulate people. We want to manipulate circumstances really to get what we're convinced is going to be the, the, the greatest blessing to our souls. God's promise is to bless us. Jeremiah says that he never will turn away from doing good for those that he loves and he makes a covenant with. But here's the deal. He does it in his wisdom, in his timing, without our help. But we like to give our help, don't we? At least Fitzpatrick helps us in her book, Idols of the Heart. She says, I love the convenience of the microwave, don't you? Just pop the casserole in and presto, instant dinner. Life is better in our house since the invention of the microwave. I enjoy all the modern conveniences, don't you? But... In the, mid, in the middle of this instant, give it to me quickly, it better be convenient culture, we tend to think that God should work in our lives in the same way. Just zap me and make me holy and, and quickly, Lord, if you don't mind. God's work in us is sometimes slow moving. 
Although it's true that all Christians know some change, even if it's minuscule, God's work, our sanctification is a process. This process involves learning, growing, falling, changing, becoming convinced again of the truth and developing holiness over our lifetimes. Only God through his Holy Spirit can make you holy and he's not going to operate according to our hurried lifestyle. What I think is an excellent observation is that in this process of learning, growing, falling, changing, there's becoming convinced of the truth again. You know what? We feel bad when that has to happen. We feel like we've let God down. God, man, I knew that scripture. I knew that truth. I know that promise, but I fell again. Well, part of the process is becoming convinced again. Because hopefully, Lord willing, that that. That convincing, convincing is coming deeper inside of us to where it's going to protect us and mold us and shape us into who God wants us to be. Another expression is competition. We have this going on where Rachel actually admits, I have wrestled with my sister and won. The name Neftali means wrestle. So they're naming their kids all the time when they call out this name. Every time that, think about this, every time that Leah is calling out Reuben, is she thinking, Jacob, see me? Every time Rachel is, is calling out, Neftali, I won. I won. We wrestled and I won. But Leah is not to be outdone. She then gives her servant to Jacob. Within competition, in the midst of, of sinful comparisons that happen, there's never enough to win. We just seek something else, something more. Friends don't do enough, don't say enough. Husbands don't do enough, say enough. Children don't do enough, say enough. And we don't, you don't do enough, say enough. Which leads to relational strife. And we see this. This is, we see this relational strife happening with cheapened relationships. Where Jacob is actually hired by Leah. I've hired you for the night. Cheapening, trading and bartering with what God says, never. You don't do that. For that relationship is sacred. You don't barter with that. You don't trade that. And here, children become a means to an end. Yeah, they're loving their children. But they're loving their children and acting in a way from what the children benefit. Their own idolatry. Their own definition of the blessing. We have to be careful. Children become, can become our ultimate pleasure and pursuit. Their grades, their appearance, their success, their excelling, they become your drive. They're everything that you work toward. And really, what we have to understand, it's, it's what's going on inside of us that needs to be questioned. Not whether they got a C on that test. And here, which is, I think, more common than we might understand, I think there's a realm of superstition that arises when we worship idols. When we go after the cravings of our own heart, there's a superstition that rises up. I still, I'm weird like this. And I, I don't know if I attribute it to playing sports when I grew up. But uh, I remember being on the baseball team in high school. And I would think that if, in baseball you're taught when the, when the pitcher's going to the plate with the ball, when he's pitching, you have to kind of walk forward so you're up on your toes and can respond wherever the ball is hitting. I would play the outfield. And so I would kind of walk up as the pitcher's going. But I would get into these weird modes. To think, okay, he threw a strike and I tapped my foot twice before I walked up. So I would do it again. Thinking that that was going to, and all of us, the whole team was enamored with superstition when it came to this. I mean, we had one guy that had to get dressed a particular way before every game. He had to put his socks on and his stirrups. He had to do everything just right. He had to tuck in his jersey into his pants a particular way. Of course, we just all mess, we love messing him up. Because he couldn't mess, we, we had all superstitions in our minds, not in front of us. He laid them all out in his locker, all nice and pretty and stuff. But we all, we all have these little weirdnesses about us that come out in superstitions. And I think their, their superstitions for both of these ladies came out in the mandrakes. The mandrakes was, it was a plant that had a fruit uh, that you could eat. But it was known as the love plant. 
It's only mentioned the other time this uh, mandrakes is mentioned in Scripture is in Song of Solomon, chapter seven. Talking about the love with the husband and the wife and the mandrakes. He ate of the mandrakes and the fragrance smell, this fragrance of love filled the room. The mandrakes, here Reuben goes to get these mandrakes, these love plants. They were thought to do two things. One, they were thought if the person that ate, if you gave that to somebody and they ate it, they would fall in love with you. And if you ate it, you'd become more fertile. So here, there, Reuben's bringing this to his mother because she's barren at that point. She hasn't had her next three children. Here, mom, I found you some mandrakes. Found you a rabbit's foot. Found you a ticket to get what you want. But Rachel, in her envy and her idolatry, says, give me some of those. Why is she asking for them? She likes the taste? No, she wants children. But here, Leah wants the love. Rachel wants the children. And they're looking for the mandrakes to be their superstitious. Bring this about now. If I have this, if I just do it this way, it'll happen. I think this occurs in us. Because here, the mandrakes, it was a cultural, societal superstition. And it crept in to their relationship with their husband, with their relationship with God, ultimately. And that happens with us as well. Where we, we buy into the culture's definition of beauty. We buy into the, the culture's definition of fashion and what kids should be and how to discipline and success and happiness. We buy into all these things. And then we look for that rabbit's foot. To bring it about, the mandrakes. What are, what are your possible mandrakes? What do you see as the one thing that you can get that, you're just, that will kind of hurry up your desire? You say, hey, I'll, I'll give this a try. It's also evidence, I think, the things that you're weary over, you're just weary about particular things in your life. That's when we want to grab a mandrake. We want it to be easy. Can I just have some relief right now? Rubbing our little rabbit's foot, eating of this, giving it to somebody else. Not so spooky when we think about it this way, but we can, a mandrake can be appearance, appearance of, of your body, appearance of your home, compromising in a life of holiness, not wanting to be too different from the world we reason. We want to see that, you know, they can still be a Christian and do these things. Was that a mandrake? To get something that you want? How you use your time? Locations, physical locations, also psychological, imaginative locations. Where do you go in your mind? Is that a mandrake? I would throw in a a plug for uh, romantic movies. Romantic movies, if you indulge in them, can easily set you up, set your husband up for failure. And set a future husband up for failure. But not serve you well because you're just imagining He doesn't have a nothing box. He's all about her. I want somebody like that. Children become mandrakes. But let's look deeper. Let's look beneath the surface. Rachel and Leah, they want something deeper in their hearts that they're longing for. They want a blessing. And they were so desirous of that blessing, they were willing to sin to get it. It seems that Leah is desiring the love and approval, acceptance from her husband, but deep down, she just wants to be loved. She wants to be approved of, wants to be accepted. And it serves her as the motivation for doing things that she did and saying the things that she said, naming her kids that way. Here, Leah has the kids. She just wants the love of her husband. And Rachel, though it appears she's going through something completely different, it really is, I think, very connected. She's She's seeking significance and acceptance, maybe not from the husband, but from society, seeking a status, seeking something from other women. See, Rachel has the husband, but she wants the kids for something else. If only they knew what God was doing. If only Leah had known from her would be all the priests And kings of the nation of Israel. And from her would come the savior of the world. Had her blood in him. If only Rachel had realized that her son Joseph was to be sent ahead. He had to be the younger brat. For the brothers. 
God, we don't like you. Get out of here. Sell you off. If only she knew that her husband would be sent ahead and endure suffering in order to, be, to rise to the second in Egypt. The second in command in Egypt. Why? To preserve life for the enduring line. We, we need to understand that only God can give us the love, the approval, the acceptance, the significance, and the status that we so desire. Only God gives it. So let's be convinced of the truth again. We're going to be convinced of the truth again with this. 1 John 3, 1. If we want love and status, here's our verse. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. That's our status. You're a child of God. So it diminishes the status that we desire with everybody else. And so we are. We are children because the Father has loved us. If we desire acceptance and significance, Colossians 1, verses 11 to 14. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Why? Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. God brings the acceptance in justifying us, the significance in qualifying us to be called his Jesus secured your daughter's status when he said, it is finished. You know what he was saying? It's enough. It's enough. There is a unique joy that I have. Here's my sensitivity coming up. having my daughters all at our big dinner table. Having my wife to my right and the table full of girls. No one right here. Because sometimes he needs help getting his food to his mouth. But there are very few moments that I cherish more than that. We had one this morning. It's actually in the table in our kitchen. I was just sitting with my girls. We were laughing. For me, that's a holy moment. And I cherish the fact that I, as a father, I get to experience that. For I think I have just an inkling of the father's heart. When you have been bought and you now sit at his table as his daughter. And men as his sons. Oh, he has purchased this for us. There is redemption. There is good news when we look at our idols and it just becomes like an onion with one layer after another. It will be that, but we can never lose sight. The Savior on our behalf. It's finished. Enough. Let's stand up and worship together.